I'm Lillian Vasquez, and this is Inland Edition. Home prices are up, interest rates are rising, and many consumers are concerned about the high price of gasoline. Maybe it's time to check in on the economy. So let's do it. Our guest is Dr. Manfred Kyle. He is the chief economist for IEEP, Inland Empire Economic Partnership. He's also the director of Lowe Institute of Political Economy, Robert Day School of Economics and Finance, Claremont McKenna College. Welcome and thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you on the program again. In late March, at the State of the Region event held in Ontario, you presented your forecasts. So we're going to discuss some of the content in your presentation. But first, I want you to share the alternative titles for the State of the Region presentation that you shared. That's funny, because because you probably take pleasure in my pain, <laughs> which, is, which is related to this. So... Um, some of, at least some of our audiences will, will understand. So I'm always trying to find a title that sort of is catchy, you know, because perhaps people will be more likely to read something. And so the idea here was to name it What Goes Down Must Come Up, which sounds fitting for, <laughs> you know, we've just been in a, a recession and, and we must come back up, Right. But the intent was also to refer to an old song by Blood, Sweat and Tears, mm-hmm. um, What Goes Up Must Come Down, right? I right. think it was called Spinning Wheels. Yes, it was. Yeah, so it was a play on that, uh, What Goes Down Must Come Up. And um, I s- sort of ran this by my research assistants. And they they stared at me with this blank look like, uh, what does it mean? And I said, okay. Uh, let me explain to you. This uh, was a band uh, called uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. And, um, you know, I, I understand that if you are not aware of them because you're more into Blackpink or whatever you listen to these days, the fact is that you're not my audience, my target audience, right? My target audience is your parents. And uh, I saw that one of the students had her cell phone in front of her. And I said, I'll tell you what. Why don't you uh, text your mother and say, uh, do you know Blood, Sweat and Tears? So she texts her and the text comes back and it says, uh, I don't know, Blood, Sweat and Tears, but maybe your grandparents will. <laughs> oh, that, that, that was that was painful, sort of telling us how we have aged. Right. Yes. This is this is similar to going into a grocery store. And hearing all of a sudden, no doubt, and Gwen Stefani over the speakers, where you would say, oh, my God, you know, this is the sort of music I used to make fun of. Um, so <laughs> at any rate, that's that's where we are. Well, I thought it was quite humorous when you went on stage and told that story. So thank you for sharing. In the past, we've talked about the U-shape and the V-shape graph. Explain the difference and which one are we coming out of or facing? So the idea of the V-shaped graph was basically uh, we turned off the lights. This was a very peculiar recession. It was not a recession that sort of came from internal dynamics of the economy. Instead, it was a forced shutdown by the government. And if you may remember, this, this happened all in March of 2020. Then the idea of a V-shaped recovery is that once we have dealt with the virus and or the worst parts of it, we switch the lights back on. And since the U.S. economy was doing well before, we just continue where we were. 
the alternative shapes of the recovery might be a Nike swoosh. You know, you go down and it takes a long time to get back up. Here's a new letter to consider, which mm. is K. So in a K, the upper arm gets back quite quickly, but the lower arm stays down. Mm. And in many ways, that is what we experienced. There were parts of the labor force, namely those who were better off, the above median wage earners, and they bounced back quite quickly. Uh, and it is the lower wage earners, and those were the ones particularly in leisure and hospitality, who to this day have not recovered employment from where we were in February of 2020. And also, there's a gender issue that goes with it. Maybe the previous recession, the Great Recession, could have been labeled a he session or a man session mm. because there were two sectors that were particularly hard affected, or and those were construction and manufacturing, industries that are dominated by males. Uh, this one is a, is a she session in the sense that a lot of the jobs that were lost were in leisure and hospitality that are really related to women. And there's another issue here. Uh, I think we have learned in this recession that perhaps we thought being at home, there's some sort of equity between men and women in terms of childcare. I think what, what the last recession has shown us that when all is said and done, it is the mother who does still take care of the child learning and being on Zoom during class lessons and so forth and so forth. So I think that that has been quite revealing. Um, but at any rate, I would characterize the current recovery as K-shaped. It has happened for above medium wages. Below medium wages are still below pre-recession employment. And, and again, the gender issue is important to keep in mind. Absolutely. And I'm certain that we saw more women taking on the role as teacher during the pandemic. And not all, but the majority, if we're talking majorities of who, who carry that challenge and still had to deal with work as well. Let me reintroduce our guest is Dr. Manfred Kyle, Chief Economist for Inland Empire Economic Partnership. In your presentation, you shared the U.S. employment recovery from recessions over the decades. Can you recap, and where are we headed today? Yeah, so the Inland Empire has been known as uh, first in, last out. So let me explain that. So different from what you might think, which is that because of the large number of commuters we have, we have 20% of our labor force commutes into the coastal areas. And so therefore you would think, well, we just react to what is happening in, in the more coastal areas. That's not true. It, it, what, what happens typically is that the uh, employment falls first in the Inland Empire and it recovers last in the Inland Empire. And, and I will explain why that is. So the image you should have is of a lake freezing and thawing. So in the initial phase, you freeze from the periphery and eventually you, you also get water in the end in the periphery, but it takes longer. So why is this? The reason this is happening has to do with commuting. So one of the things that you have to realize up front is how horrible commuting is. To go from Upland to downtown LA is 37 miles. So if you drive 60 miles an hour, you should be there in 37 minutes. 
<laughs> you can Google this. And the Google Times for leaving Upland on a Thursday morning at 7, which is the slowest commuting time to downtown during the week, is two hours and 10 minutes. Mm. To come back that evening, if you leave downtown at 5, it takes on average two hours and 20 minutes. So that round trip is four and a half hours. So none of us enjoy sitting for four and a half hours in traffic when we could be home. So why do we do it? And the answer is very simple. The jobs we go to are better paying than the jobs that we can have here. And that's a theme later on I want to expand on. Mm. And so people would be even willing to take a small pay cut just if they could avoid that horrible commute, right? So, so it's not a question of people wanting to, to work downtown. And the second reason is, of course, housing. Uh, they, they cannot afford the housing in the more coastal areas, whereas in the Indian Empire, housing is more affordable. So if you wish, when the recession starts downtown, the first people who will be laid off are those who have less human capital than others. And unfortunately, those are commuters. Uh, if they had higher human capital, they would be living in the uh, coastal areas, right? So as a result, the ones who commute are first laid off, and the unemployment statistics go by residency, not by where you lose the job, but where you live. Mm. And so therefore, they show up as being unemployed in the Inland Empire, not in the coastal areas. And in a recovery, it's the other way around. The people who will get first hired will be the ones who uh, have the higher human capital. And so, therefore, people in the Inland Empire will get last rehired, right? And, of course, this will have then repercussion for employment in the Inland Empire. Right. So that's basically uh, how recessions typically go. The last recession is a complete difference uh, in the following sense. Everyone got laid off or those who got laid off, did get laid off in the third week of March, right? We all remember uh, sort of what, what traffic um, patterns looked like on on March 19th. Right. So we're not first in, last out. So everyone goes in at the same date. And now something remarkable happens on the recovery. And, and this is reflected in the numbers that we see for the Inland Empire. Logistics all of a sudden plays a central role in the recovery. And that started early. I mean, we all started to have more deliveries to our homes. Um, we had more imports as U.S. economy uh, recovered. And if you want to sort of say to people, how is the Inland Empire different? We have a very large logistics sector. And so everything that had to go through Federal Express or UPS or shipping from the ports LA, Long Beach, all of that boosted the uh, logistics sector. And that is, is visible in the numbers. And, and uh, as, as a matter of fact, we have come out first of the recession. We in the Inland Empire, different from California and uh, the United States, we have fully recovered employment. And what is more important, we have reached the same labor force numbers that we had um, prior to the recession, right? And and that is not the case in the nation and in our state. So that's remarkable. Um, right. But again, that comes because of the special role that this recession has sort of played compared to other recessions. The fear at the moment is that 
there will be a double dip recession. Mm. And when one talks about a double dip recession, you go back to 1980 and 1981. In 1980, there was the Iran-Iraq war, sometimes referred to as OPEC-2. And as a result, the U.S. economy went into a recession. And then we recovered, but inflation had reached, in monthly data, 15%. So that's high, much higher than it is now. So when people say, we now have the highest inflation rate in the last 40 years, that's the data point they refer to. Mm -hmm. And the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Paul Volcker at the time, uh, as an aside, by the way, the tallest central banker we've had, he was six foot eight. Um, he he uh, stepped on the brake by raising interest rates to really high levels, uh, 20%, to slow down the economy, to create a recession, to get rid of inflation. Since then, we have not had substantial inflation until now. And if there will be a double dip recession, then it's the possibility that in 2022 or in 2023, there will be another downturn. Now, to take the suspense away, we don't see that. But there are many people out there who talk about this, and then sometimes they refer to double-dip recession, and, and that's why I wanted to explain it. You're listening to Inland Edition on 91.9 KVCR. I'm Lillian Vasquez. We're talking to Dr. Manfred Kyle. Dr. Kyle is chief economist with the Inland Empire Economic Partnership. He recently provided his economic forecasts at the annual IEEP State of the Region event. Dr. Kyle, in preparing for our chat today, I read that the stock market can really be a poor indicator of a recession. Really? So the stock market has turned down before every recession, and then you have to define what a, what a turning down means, right? But unfortunately, it also has turned down uh, a bunch of extra times. So, so the joke one makes is um, the stock market has predicted 20 of the last 12 recessions, right? <laughs> so so the, the question is not does the stock market predict. The, the, the question is the false positives. So uh, it's as if you test for the coronavirus and, and you get a result that says you have it when you, when you don't have it, right? right? And so there are other indicators um, that have done better. For example, and I think this is what people should focus on, uh, the one that seems to have done best is called the spread between a long-term interest rate and a short-term interest rate. So in our case, what we focus on is the three-month Treasury bill and the 10-year government bond. So when the short-run rate does go above the long-run rate, then that's a strong signal that there will be a recession. For some people, it's hard to understand because they cannot think in terms of term structures of interest rates. So I'm, I'm, I'm simply putting it out there. A second one that's perhaps easier to understand is if you look at the U.S. unemployment rate over the last three months and you form the average. Why form the average? Because, you know, from month to month, things can happen that are not really indicative of what is happening to the economy. So Take the average over the last three months and compare that to the average over the previous year. If the average over the three last months is higher than over the previous year, then, again, you're more likely to face a recession. And that, of course, hasn't happened either. So to us, the signals are not there that there is a recession coming within a year. There are some other variables that, that we include in, in our uh, 
estimations such as consumer sentiment, which I have to tell you, if you look at the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index, that surprisingly has really gone south. Hmm. So that's that's one indicator. And, and this Consumer Sentiment Index is based on questions such as, I'm, I'm making it up now, in the last six months, are you likely to buy a new phone? Something like that. And so it, it is forward-looking in the sense that people are thinking about their future and, and what they will be able to afford. Right? So before we end this conversation, I want to touch on the idea of gas prices. Is there relief inside of the pumps? And since gas prices affect nearly everyone, how does this issue play into the outlook in our region? Absolutely. I mean, I look at gas prices as a tax. So if you're the average consumer and you go to the to the gas pump, uh, it doesn't matter if the price has gone up because the state of California uh, is charging a higher tax on gasoline or not. You, all that you see is the higher price. You don't care if you right. pay that uh, extra money to California or to the sheiks. Right. It doesn't matter, right? And, of course, there is every attempt at the moment to try to mitigate this real increase in gasoline prices. One of them is the discussion in, in California of giving people a rebate right. or to suspend the tax. Right. So there, there's political issues involved if you make this a general rebate. Uh, you know, the, the increase in gasoline prices affects rich people less than uh, poor people, particularly those who are poor and who are relying on transportation by mm. car, mm-hmm. right? So, but these are details. So, so one way to lower it is that. The second way to lower it is, of course, what the Biden administration and, by the way, other countries are doing, which is to release uh, reserves, right? right? right. So that, uh, that will at least result in a, in a temporary stop to the um, to the gas price increases. And if you look at the gasoline prices over the last half a month, they virtually have fallen every day, but not, not quickly not enough. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I listen to NPR and, and somebody will say, well, uh, over the last uh, 14 days, we've had gasoline price decreases by 15 cents, you know, right. and you say, okay, big deal. that's uh, interest. <laughs> big <laughs> exactly. deal, yeah. So, yes, think of it as a tax. And uh, therefore, it does affect, of course, consumers um, uh, in terms of what else they can spend money on, right? Um, to a big part, of course, this, there's little we can do. For what it's worth, the Russian oil that is being exported, only um, 3% of that come uh, to the United States. Unfortunately for California, that percentage is much higher because we have a different grade of gasoline. Um, Mm. So California, again, is unfortunately more effective. Let me reintroduce our guest is Dr. Manfred Kyle, Chief Economist for Inland Empire Economic Partnership. And we're discussing his recent presentation of the state of the region. All right, so share a little of the planning for the Inland Empire in 2042. What are you suggesting or what are future structures changes needed in the Inland Empire for it to be a successful geographical area to thrive under what might be our new normal? In terms of coming out of the recession, we are done. We have recovered all the jobs. We have a larger labor force than before. So I compared that going down 
as I did, the Kern River, uh, and going into a level four uh, whitewater rapid. And, and I exited the boat at the top of it, and you come out of it at the bottom, and you're happy you're alive. That's where we are now. And everything looks smooth ahead, right? And so, therefore, you, you're starting to relax and not really plan. So that's the fear at the moment. To give you some um, dramatic numbers, we have just risen one point in the largest population by MSA, Metropolitan Statistical Area. The Inland Empire, so San Bernardino County and Riverside County together, are now the 12th largest MSA in the United States, and there are 386 of those. So that's a lot, yes. right? The largest one being New York, the second largest Los Angeles, Chicago, and so forth and so forth, right? We are number 12. We just passed San Francisco. So that's huge. That is. But then you want to know what is the strength of the economy, and that is measured by something, uh, well, basically output, gross domestic product, meaning what is produced in that area. And still, because of our population size being 11% of Californians live in the Inland Empire, we then drop to rank number 20. But that's still respectable, right? Right. But the way to measure really the wealth of a region is you divide output by people. And so that gives you what the average person produces. And here it becomes scary. We drop from 20 to 340. So it is not the question of employment. It is not the question of number of people living here. It is the stuff that we produce is not very valuable, meaning the stuff that we produce within the Inland Empire. So that's a bit unfair because 20% of our uh, labor force commutes. But there is a measure called per capita income, and that takes into account what commuters make. And when we do that, we go from 340 to 290. Still, we are in the bottom third of all metropolitan statistical areas. And if I gave you some names, of areas that are ranked around us. You, you, at least I didn't know where they are. Um, so, so that's sort of embarrassing. And so then the point of the State of the Region Conference was, how can we go over the next 20 years to 2042, how can we go to a place that perhaps is reasonable in, in the top 40%? And the one that we picked to make this less abstract uh, was Phoenix. So Phoenix is basically in the 40 percentile of MSAs in terms of per capita income. This is where the industrial composition of, of Phoenix, surprisingly, is not that different from the Indian Empire. But what it will require is that we need to produce higher value-added goods. And the threat, in particular, over the next five to ten years, is that the logistics industry will be particularly highly impacted by automation. And so will be uh, leisure and hospitality, right? So the hope is, can we go to the forefront of this instead of losing jobs in uh, logistics? Can we say, we are the ones who specialize in logistics? Can we have centers of logistics here? Can we work at the forefront of this in order to make this happen? And in order to attract industries that do more than to produce little value or low-valued uh, goods, such as warehousing, in order for that to happen, you have to have a concerted effort by the two counties and, and um, the political entities in it. That is really central 
it, it can't be just done by one county. And there, of course, the fear is that the next election is not in 20 years, but in two years right. uh, or, or earlier, right? And so politicians have a much shorter planning horizon. So we feel that there should be some coalition of businesses, of politicians, and there should be a task force. And certainly the Inland Empire Economic Partnership would like to be part of this. Some task force to plan so that in the next 20 years, our children can be in a position that current people are, let's say, in the Phoenix area. That's the target. Manford, I'd like to push back a little bit on the logistics, if I can. And and that is, I know logistics is the Inland Empire. It's the workforce development that, you know, we're looking towards. But when I think logistics, I think the amount of trucks on our freeway. And now it's that we're already bombarded with trucks. Where does that take us? I mean, our freeways are just going to be trucks. Yeah, I mean, that that is unfortunately the problem of the ports of Los Angeles and uh, Long Beach. So we thrive of that because if you think of the area around uh, the ports of LA and Long Beach, they're all built up. Once the containers come off these uh, container ships, there is no place where you can put them and reassemble them and redistribute them and so forth. So if these goods, some of them go on trains and they go through the Inland Empire and out, But if they are to be redistributed on the West Coast, then they come to the Inland Empire, and that's what we do. And this is the problem with with, uh, the trucks and uh, uh, the warehouses. And it's not only the trucks. It's people feeling sort of that warehouses are in their backyard. This requires a task force to to deal with that, uh, that, that local communities cannot just sort of address. It's really a county or regional problem. Again, this has been the savior for us in the current downturn. I don't even want to call it anymore a recession. It was a downturn Mm -hmm. forced by the government. Mm -hmm. So it has been a savior for us in the sense that if you look at the number of jobs created, the reason why we're doing better than the state and the nation is because of the huge increase in jobs in logistics. But, I mean, this is not uh, sustainable in the future. And and to just sit back and say, I survived the whitewater level four, you know, and there's smooth sailing ahead. This is my new normal. You don't want this to be your new normal. If this is your new normal, you will be stuck in the bottom third of metropolitan statistical areas in terms of per capita GDP. That's not what we want. We want jobs out here that are higher quality so that people don't have to commute anymore. Right. As I said, everyone is willing to give up a little bit of their income just to avoid sitting in this traffic. Right. And so uh, if we can attract uh, more, then that's better. One of the biggest differences between us and Phoenix is people who uh, have a college degree in the Inland Empire. That's 22 percent in the Phoenix area. It's 32 percent. So, again, we need to have a more educated labor force. And we need to be able to attract businesses to come here. Very good. Well, thank you for sharing a bit about the presentation and your point of view. It's great speaking with you. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Dr. Manfred Kyle is a leader at the Lowe Institute of Political Economy at Robert Day School of Economics and Finance, Claremont McKenna College. He's also chief economist at the Inland Empire Economic Partnership. You'll find more at their website at IEEP.com. 
will include a link and one for Claremont McKenna College when we post this episode on the Inland Empire program page. Join us again next week for Inland Edition, Wednesdays at 2 p.m. and 6.30, right here on KVCR. To hear this episode and past shows, visit our website at kvcrnews.org slash inlandedition. You can also listen to Inland Edition on iTunes, Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, or search for Inland Edition on your favorite streaming service. Inland Edition is a production of KVCR News. Support for this production, including writing and editing, comes from Rick Dulock, Shereen Awad, and David Fleming. We get website, social media, and technical support from Sean Houlihan, Natasha Coles, and Tim Steidel. I'm Lillian Vasquez. Thanks for listening, and bye for now.